Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hey, people. Welcome back. Hope you are well and slaying it in every way. Our guest today for Stimulus Episode 10 is Dr. Christina Shenvey. She is from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she is the director of the UNC Office of Academic Excellence. How'd you like that on your business card? She is an MD, PhD, soon-to-be MBA, geriatric emergency physician. She's host of her own show, GEMCAST, G-E-M-CAST, where it turns out it's not about rubies and emeralds, but about geriatric emergency medicine. Go figure. You know, one of the beauties of being a dad is that your dad jokes become a legitimate form of humor. Legitimate people. I've collaborated with Christina many times on ERCast, and there we focus on the nuance of geriatric medical issues. But as I've gotten to know her, I've just seen how she, at least by external appearances, goes about her day so deliberately and with such clear intent that I had to see what the secret sauce was about. And then... I saw a lecture that she gave on something called acting with agency. And that's going to be the crux of our conversation today. We're going to talk about what it means, some actionable skills, how to apply it. And we kind of go on a bit of a circuitous route to get there. Let me give you a little bit of a roadmap on how this conversation plays out. We're going to talk about the importance of being specific and deliberate about your philosophy of life how remembering your mortality puts the rest of life in perspective. Stoic philosophy, actually we talk a lot about Stoic philosophy. Viktor Frankl, whether or not we have free will, something I still try to wrap my head around. And then after all of that goes into the sausage maker, we pull it all together and get into acting with agency. I was talking to my brother the other day, who is one of the smartest people that I know, which made it very hard growing up, especially <laughs> with arguments. Because And then he he was a lawyer for many years and mm. yeah, now going to film school. So mm, cool. beautiful. We had this weird conversation. We we're talking about mission statements and mm. we're, we're talking about corporate mission statements and how they're often so hollow. They're really, uh, I mean, some of them are really used as guideposts. And I work with a company that that mission statement is referred back to all the time. Most companies they give it short shrift and it's just kind of hollow. And it's like, well, you act totally opposite to what your mission statement says. Yeah. But it got me thinking about personal mission statements, which sounds like just the most effete, nonsensical new age BS. But I was like, you know, if you don't have that, at least like a general idea or like a philosophy of life, then how are you judging your decisions? You know, like what what is it that you're holding them up to? And I, th- I think some people have that just as like a general idea, like, okay, here's what I believe, here's who I am, but maybe haven't given it structured thought. I don't know if you need to write it down or not. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that, because I know that you you study a lot of this and you put a lot of best practices and how to live life with intent into action. So, I mean, this is kind of a surprise question for you, but what, like, what do you think about that idea of like a personal mission statement or just kind of like writing down and codifying your life philosophy? I think that's a great idea because like you said, we don't know if 
we don't know the answer to the question, how am I doing in life? Or how am I doing with my time? How am I doing with spending my money? Unless we have that straight rule that we can hold things up to. And saying, oh, I need a personal mission statement is very intimidating because then there's all this pressure because what if I don't write it right? (laughs) What if I make a mistake in my own mission statement? So instead, I think we can think about just general missions. One of my missions is to be a good doctor. So things like making sure I stay up on practice, best practices, making sure I am listening to my team. Another one of my missions or big values is as a parent, leading my kids well, teaching my kids well, teaching my kids and taking care of them and spending time with them. So if I look at my time or how I'm spending my energy and I realize, oh, I haven't seen my children in a week, then that's a bad thing. (laughs) Or if I realize, oh, I haven't really kept up with how to, you know, what, what we're doing nowadays for diagnosing this or that, then that's a bad thing. So I think You know, it's intimidating to say, oh, let's create a mission statement. But you're absolutely right about companies, which is that the most successful companies have big mission statements or value statements, and they actually stick to them and they matter. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about if I was going to write this down, I don't know if I've ever, maybe I've done it at some point, written down like, okay, what's what's my mission here? What, What do I value the most? And there's like all these subcategories and, you know, you could go into like if you were doing it with a formatted outline, like the mm-hmm. eighth bullet point in, like, okay, here's the thing. But I think about what what are the times in my life that I didn't like what I was doing, that I didn't like mm-hmm. how I was acting. And then I look back in a, in a similar situation, how does somebody act in a way that I would want to? And I think that all of those times, whether it was for my family, for myself, or for work, the times that I didn't like it were when I was not fully engaged or fully <laughs> present. So for my wife, for my kids, it's like, okay, well, I'm doing something else, which is taking priority over you. Or for myself, like I'm just kind of distracted with all this stuff rather than being fully aware and present in this moment. And for work, it's like, oh, I've got all these distractions and, and all, all this, whether it's in the emergency department or on, on a podcast, I'm distracted. I'm not fully present. So I would be be fully present for my family, myself, and my work. Mm, I like my, that. I think that I was interviewed by... Josh Russell a while ago it was the, like the 10th anniversary of ERCast and he's kind of saying, what would be your billboard or your bumper sticker, like a Tim Ferriss kind of mm-hmm. question. And I was like, ah, I guess it, I, I don't even remember what I said, but it was something like, be present. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was, this moment is all there is or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's great because it's so simple and memorable because if you do have, you know, this is vision statement 4.0 subcategory 3X, then how are you going to really remember that? How is that going to permeate your day-to-day life? Whereas if it's simple like that, you can really pull it up. And I think, you know, I have kind of visions or goals for my work life and my home life. One of my others is in education, in teaching people how to teach and teaching people how to learn more effectively. And Another one for me is being able to use my strengths. When I think back on times when I was really unhappy at work or in my life situation, I realized I felt very trapped because I wasn't able to flex my strengths to their full extent. So, for example, if you think about, you know, an animal in a cage that's just too small for them and they can't stretch out, that's what it feels like, where I'm not able to really stretch myself and use my strengths to their capacity. That's another way you can identify what are your visions or what are your goals is to say, well, when have I really, really enjoyed what I'm doing or when have I really hated it? 
And what was the reason for that? We have these lofty ideas and, you know, with things like meditation or practices where you reflect back on that or just are aware of your thoughts or actions, you know, just kind of taking pause. Okay. I can be aware that I am acting in accordance to my values and, you know, doing what's in your best interest and in alignment with values, I just... It's not as easy as it seems. It feels like there's always a magnetic force away, you know, and it sometimes feels like we're our worst enemy. No, totally. And there's so many forces pulling us in different directions, different pressures from other people or from ourselves or societal expectations. Actually, that's part of why I love this quote, the Marcus Aurelius quote, think of yourself as dead. You have lived your life. Now take what's left and live it properly, because then it takes away the pressure of all those other things. If you think of yourself as my life is already over, I don't have to worry if I mess up my own mission statement. I don't have to worry if I pick the wrong mission statement. I can just focus on the things that really matter. That's an interesting quote. And I'm and trying to wrap my head around it, that thinking yourself as dead, just that now your life is house money, that you don't have to worry about the, the rest of the stuff. Right. Wait, wait, how, how, do you, how are you framing that and relating that to the rest of your life? Well, just thinking about the idea that I don't have to worry about the rest of my life because, yes, it's house money. I've expensed it. It's already written off in a sense. So I don't have to worry about succeeding in my career. I don't have to worry about will I have a big 401k because my life is over. Instead, I focus on what really matters. Now, of course, I'm still going to keep my job and still save for retirement. But the point is, it allows you, I think, to focus more clearly on what's important. If you kind of look back or say, you know, if I look back on um, my life in the end, this gets back to your being present. There's a great quote by Martin Luther. So he was a famous theologian, he a writer. He sparked the Protestant Reformation, nailed his, what was it, 95 theses or something to the, the Wittenberg Chapel. And he famously said, there are two days that matter, this day and judgment day. Meaning, if you look back on your life from when you're dead or when you're dying, what will matter at that point? That's all that matters. And then today. So being present, like you were talking about, today and the end of our life. And we, if we live today with the perspective of what we will care about at the end of our life, then we'll be living well. Is that an exercise that you do? It's almost like a, like a negative visualization where you say like, okay, I am dead. What does that feel like? And now what's my perspective on life? How do you actually enact that? Because, okay, I can think that. But I mean, like, do you sit down for 10 minutes and really, really, really think it and internalize mm -hmm. it? Or is there something specific that you go through? I don't specifically do anything sort of morbidly meditative like that. But I do think keeping a view of our mortality keeps us better in line with reality. If we pretend we're never going to die, that's living an illusion. And especially we know that now more than ever. And so it's part of our family discussion that I know, my husband know, my kids know, we all know we're going to die. I think about that, for example, when I leave the house. What is the last thing, if I got in a car accident, what is the last thing I'd want my kids to remember of me? So I never leave the house angry. I always say, bye, I love you. And I give them each a hug because I know that I'm, I mean, we know this more than anybody is in working in the ER, that we are mortal, that anything could happen on the drive. And so keeping that in mind, I think, makes you more in tune with reality. And that's actually very much a Stoic philosophy as well of keeping your own mortality in mind because then you don't fear it either. I don't have any tattoos, but the one that I envision on my left volar forearm 
is memento mori. And I, I say that to myself several times a day, if I'm getting bent out of shape about something and man, we're talking like, ah, oh, we, we are these great philosophers. I get bent out of shape about stuff all oh, the time. Oh yeah. I just kind of, I see it there. Memento mori, man. Remember mortality. You you could get it, you know, thinking about this too with, uh, <laughs> hey, next time I, I see you, I, I want to see your tat. <laughs> <laughs> One of the the things that's a big part of my family's narrative is my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor 10 years ago, and he had surgery and uh, chemo and radiation and all that stuff, and he's doing fine. We're, we're fine. But he was a totally healthy person. And the day before he had a seizure and was diagnosed, I was complaining about some problem with our furniture. Our furniture had been delivered. It was not what I wanted. There were problems with it. I was so, like you said, bent out of shape. And then that night he has a seizure and we go to the ER and he's diagnosed with a brain tumor. And all of a sudden that furniture doesn't matter anymore, does it? Like I said, he's doing fine. But last year he was diagnosed with a recurrence. So it came back. So we had to figure out, does he need surgery? Or he ended up being able to get cyber knife, more radiation. And this time we had to tell our kids because last time my oldest was 14 months and my other three weren't born yet. But this time they were old enough to understand. So we sat them down and we told them daddy's brain tumors come back. And they knew he had it. You know, he has a six inch scar from his crany. And so they kind of sat there and they looked to us for their cues. And my 10 year old son, his eyes welled up with tears and he says, daddy, are you going to die? And my husband goes, well, we're all going to die. And at the time, I was like, what? You can't say that to him. You need to reassure him and tell him, no, I'm not going to die. But then, of course, we realized, no, that's a lie. So we said, we're all going to die. I don't think we're going to die right now. I don't think daddy's going to die this week, this month, and hopefully not this year. But just having that reality check that we're not immortal. We are going to die at some point. That is a lot to digest, uh, especially for a kid. It actually makes me think about a friend of mine who I had on ERCast. It was about a year and a half ago. And this was, I don't know, about six months after he had been diagnosed with what later proved to be a fatal illness. Mm. And he died last year. And he was the kind of guy that in this pandemic would be loving it so much. And he would also be walking around in a papper 24-7 just, <laughs> just to be a, weir a weirdo. And I asked him, you know, what was the main lesson that you learned from all this? And what's what do you want to tell people? And in our conversation, you know, we talked about how to be a hospitalist, how to be an ER doc, how to be a dad, how, you know, just the, the things that he's stripped away all the BS in his life. It's like, what is it that you want people to learn, to take away he said, every moment means so much. And memento mori, you remember your mortality. Mm -hmm. It's like when you have all of the distractions of everyday life layered on top of your thinking, it's like, okay, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But when you really have a clock ticking, six months is generous, that puts it so much in perspective. And visiting his grave and it was just so so real. And he was young. He was in his 40s. You know, it's like this classic glioblastoma story, mm -hmm. young doctor. Young he's just very much like, like your husband. And it was, um, I think that, you know, more than 
when my dad died or my grandparents or pretty much anyone I know just because he was so young and he was my peer and he was my friend and it was like, mm. you know, and we worked together for so many years and so many night shifts. I've never felt that so much than at that moment of just like putting my hand on the ground and he's, mm. you know, and he's under there. The spark of consciousness is, has flown the coop from his body. Those moments when you had consciousness and were aware, those really did mean so much. And it's not even a secret. It's just you need to peel away the chaff so that you can experience the wheat of life. Mm, I like that. There's another quote I really like from Viktor Frankl. He was a psychologist and Holocaust survivor and has written just some amazing things that you feel like he's peering into the human soul and just getting this amazing understanding of this, this kernel of wheat. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And to me, that feels like almost a potential space. It's so completely snapped shut that we don't even realize it's there. And so something happens, some stimulus, somebody says something, somebody does something, and our response is immediate. We don't even pause in that space to think, how should I react to this? How should I think about this? And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about stoicism before, but that's one of the core goals of stoicism and something that I found incredibly helpful, where the goal is to notice and understand and then control what happens in that space. So that instead of just being buffeted by the winds of what other people do and what people say and what's happening externally to you, which you can not control at all. And that's where thinking about your mortality comes in. You realize you can't control external things at all. The only thing you can control is your actions and your thoughts and what you do in that potential space between a stimulus and a response. This is way off the road of what we're going to talk about, <laughs> but I'm really curious to see your thought on this. We've actually never spoken on it, but I'm sure that you thought of it, is whether or not we have free will. Mm. and. You think, well, of course I have free will. But then you look at, well, where do your thoughts come from? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is it? It was like Eckhart Tolle said, you're not the thinker, you're the observer. Mm -hmm. I feel pretty comfortable saying you have no control over your thoughts. The ones that just kind of pop up and bubble up, where do those come from? Those don't come from your volition. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you can invoke a thought or invoke an idea, but I think that personally, that free will does not exist there. But then there's a question of now I have this space between stimulus and response. That moment, that filter, you're thinking, well, I have free will there because I choose now what to do with that thought that comes up. But then it's like, oh, well, you know what? That's actually just the culmination of all the stuff that's happened to you in your life and this construct that you actually had no control over. <laughs> it's an argument that is circular and could go on and on forever. But I feel like if you have free will, which I do feel like you do, that that's the moment, or at least yes. you have responsibility is that yes. that filter between stimulus and response. Yes. You're... Oh, so much to unpack there. First of all, the word responsibility, since that's what you said last. Have you read uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? 
Uh, you have? Okay, are you is, about to pull this, it down? Your earmarked, highlighted is, copy. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking over at my bookshelf. Yeah, I see. I read that in residency. Seven Habits Highly Effective uh-huh. People, and I nerd alert. I quote that book all the time. Yes. And I quote that in conversation. I have Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. I have. Seven uh, you got the you got the whole box set. So <laughs> oh, I drank the, all. I, I you drank the Kool Aid. Oh, I've got I the Seven the Habits of Highly Effective Kids. My kids read that. So l- here's a quote. Look at the word responsibility. Response ability, the ability to choose your response. And he said, highly proactive people recognize that responsibility. They do not blame circumstances, conditions, or conditioning for their behavior. Their behavior is a product of their own conscious choice based in values rather than based on feelings. So he's really just reframing stoicism right there, saying that your actions are a result of your choice. You can't blame other people. But getting back to your free will question, I mean, that really goes into the whole philosophical, spiritual, religious realm. And I think it's really interesting to think about. So I have a PhD in chemistry. And if you think about from just a molecular perspective, okay, well, what is going on when you have a thought? There's some neurons firing. There's some ions that are moving across osmotic membranes and potentials. Do you have any control over that? Well, sort of you do. And it really delves into the deeper questions of who who do you think we are? Do we have consciousness? What is free will? Do we have control? And if we're just completely just collections of complicated molecules, then what does it even mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a self? But if you look at it at a reductionist perspective, like down to the atom level, do we have free will? I don't know. My husband has a PhD in quantum physics. And he would say, well, from the quantum realm, we see that it isn't just like we're a complex network of billiard balls in terms of our atoms interacting in molecules. Because actually, when you add in quantum mechanics, there's now probability factors rather than just you hit this billiard ball and Newtonian mechanics says it will go this direction and cause that to happen. There's a lot of great questions. What does that mean? That there's probability factors that I might not make the same choice Again, if presented with the same information, that it's kind of that there's some randomness to it. The famous experiments of Schrodinger's cat, right? So, is the cat dead or alive? So, you have a cat in a box, you fire a, a gun in it. Is the cat dead or alive? You don't know. There's some probability that it's dead, there's some probability that it's alive. And you don't know until you open it up and look at it. But what's the weird thing about the experiments is that when you do this at the molecular level, the cat is both dead and alive. It's in a superposition of states of being both dead and alive. And it's not until a consciousness looks at it that it then it's called it collapses that superposition into a single state or it collapses the eigenvalues of that matrix so that it is down into now a single state. So there's all sorts of weird things that quantum mechanics brings in. And that's all I'm going to say about it because otherwise I'll embarrass myself. All right, when I get back on track. Here. Okay, back on track. <laughs> and and this relates to what we're what we're talking about, but I I'm curious as to what this term means because I've never fully grasped it is having agency, you know, agency in what you do and your decisions and it relates to how you make decisions and how you see yourself making decisions. So, what does that mean and is that an important term to think about when you are thinking about decisions? I think it's really important, especially now when we all have so many more extra emotions to deal with. But it gets into what we do with that space in between stimulus and response. So agency is really owning what we do, owning what we think, owning how we feel. 
And a lot of times, if you come home and you say to your wife or husband, oh my gosh, this person did that. I'm so upset. I'm really angry. This person hurt my feelings. Look at all the power we're giving those other people. We've just given them the power to hurt our feelings. We've given them the power to make us feel angry or upset. And we've just gone directly from stimulus to response. Instead of pausing and saying, I can choose to feel angry or I can choose to think differently and then have different feelings. For example, agency can help you even in practical ways. So if you hate your job and you're dreading going in and you drag yourself into work, kind of grumbling the whole time, and you feel like you are just, you have no control over your life, then you're going to feel miserable. Whereas if you go into it saying, I choose to go into work today, because you always choose, you could choose not to go into work, you might lose your job, but that was a choice. You choose to go into work and you you know, choose to drive in, you choose to go to work, then all of a sudden that just the choice of it and owning that choice makes it much more tolerable. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from owning both what we do, but then also how we feel and, and how we react to people. That makes me think of, and I, I've told this story on ERCast before, probably more than once and in talks as well. So for those of you who heard it, forgive me, but it makes me think of this five-minute interaction I saw probably 20 years ago. And is when I, when I was a new attending and I'm just trying to figure out what to do, how to navigate the world. And there's a lot of opportunity for you to feel responsible for the distress of others that that is put upon you. And then you, you feel bad and you feel anxious. And it's like, oh, I need to take care of all the stuff. I need to take care of their this. I need to take care of their that. And there was a patient who had some kind of gynecologic issue and her, her husband was with her. And the, the doc that came down had been in the military for a long time. And she was, she was very kind and really good, you know, just like like in, in the movies when someone doesn't look and kind of like throws a throwing knife 20 feet that sticks <laughs> in the exact target, you know, like that kind of ninja. Universally liked and respected and a little bit feared. So <laughs> she walks in the room and I'm, I'm listening to this right from right outside and her husband just starts laying into her, laying into the stock. Now, obviously he's projecting something onto mm -hmm. her, but just like laying in, laying in and the wife starts laying into her and she's just kind of presenting options. You know, it's like, we could do this, we could do that. And they're just, you know, going. And she says, let me pause you for a second. I am not the author of your distress. Mm. I'm not the author of anything happening here. I'm just here to help you. Whoa. Mm. I'm not the author of your distress. And, and as you say agency, it just makes me think that story that I am the author of my story. The internal locus of control, like all of these different terms I guess they're all the same thing, internal locus of control, agency, I'm the author of my story. You've got responsibility for the direction that you decide to take. Yeah. No, that's like the first premise of stoicism. The external things are not the problem. It's your assessment of them. Now, how often if somebody calls you up and they're you know, railing on something that, oh my gosh, this happened, I can't believe that. And then what happens? We reflect that back to them. We say, oh yeah, you should be really mad. That person shouldn't have done that. What about if instead we say, actually, these external things aren't the problem. It's your assessment of them. Or what if we say that to ourselves, or our spouse says that to us? That actually returns the locus of control or the center of gravity into our own you know, circle of control instead of keeping it outside. Yeah, you got to be really careful with how you respond to yeah, stoicism to people. Yeah. <laughs> they can really you know, you have off. to be somebody who's willing to take that. When we talk about this, it makes me think of 
learned helplessness, which we see a lot in medicine. It's easy to say, oh, I, I see this in a certain patient group that they are victims and they are helpless. I think it also can exist within the provider, the clinician, doctor, nurse. I mean, I, th I think that in some ways, nobody's immune from learned helplessness. Oh, yeah. We feel it all the time. We feel like my hands are tied. I can't get you this thing. I can't get you this follow-up. I can't do the right thing for the patient because of this administrative hurdle or burden. And the problem with learned helplessness is that it stifles our creativity. So agency, I think of as the opposite of learned helplessness. Learned helplessness comes from actually some really unfortunate experiments that they did in dogs, which now would not be IRB approved, where they took these dogs and put them in a cage where they couldn't get out and they subjected them to these electric shocks and the dogs had no way out. And then they put them in another cage where they could get out if they kind of jumped over a hurdle and subjected them to the shocks and the dogs didn't go jump over the hurdle. They stayed there because they had learned that they're helpless, that they learned that they couldn't solve problems or that they couldn't choose where to go. And the same thing happens to us if we're in these kind of toxic environments and we allow ourselves to continue to feel that we are victims or that we are subject to all these external things and we have no choice. And if we are able to reframe how we think about it and say, no, going to work is still my choice. Doing this is my choice. Being angry or not being angry is my choice. Then we can hopefully escape some of that learned helplessness so that we don't lose our ability to problem solve and be creative. Acting with agency, you're still going through life, you're still breathing and eating, but I think it makes a big difference on how you experience life. The world's going to still turn, the sun's going to come up, but your interaction with the world will be very different. And there will probably be different outcomes to the things you do, to your relationships, to your work. And we've talked about a little bit of the barriers, you know, learned helplessness, big, big barrier. But besides that, what do you see as the barriers to acting with agency? Well, I think it's easy in some ways, just like if we said, sure, being healthy is easy, just eat right and exercise every day. Well, that's easy in theory, but hard to do in practice. And it's not something that you can just do once. Like, oh, I went to the gym once three years ago, so now I'm perfectly healthy, or I ate a salad once, now I'm, I'm healthy. It's something that we have to work at, just like we work at exercise every single day. And there's several different ways you could come at this. I think one of the barriers is just our habit. We're so used to just having a stimulus and response and no space in between. And we're used to blaming other people for our feelings. Think about as a kid, if if your mom said, what was your brother's name? Rich. Okay. If, if your mom's like, hey, Rob, you hurt Rich's feelings, come apologize, hug it out. So we're kind of trained that, oh, if I do something, I'll hurt their feelings. I'm responsible for their feelings. And if they do something and they hurt my feelings, that's their fault. So it's a total reframing of, no, if they do something and my feelings are hurt, that's within my control because I am the one who is authoring those feelings and those thoughts. So it takes a lot of rethinking how we've been taught. And it also takes a lot of hard mental work because it's much easier to just get angry or it's much easier to feel hurt than it is to stop and say, what is actually going on? So there's a couple different approaches you can take practically if you wanted to do this. So one is called the analytical approach. And that is to really break it down and say, okay, what has actually happened? So say 
you're, you know, somebody in your your coworker or a colleague or a consultant says something mean to you. Like, I can't believe you stupid ER doctors, blah, 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 blah. So what has actually happened in the physical world? That was a trigger for me yeah. forever. And it was it was often with surgeons mm. and particular surgeons who would like just regularly impugn, you know, they kind of impugn everyone's character, but to say, you mean like impugn your care and you think like, okay, I'm approaching this from an evidence-based way. You know, I'm like using a decision instrument. I'm doing this. I'm, you know, I'm watching the patient and then, you know, would come down and be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you don't love that, blah, blah, with profanity sometimes. And <laughs> I mean, not, not always rude, but definitely there was a subtext of you're an idiot. And I know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing. Now, granted, sometimes that was true. But more <laughs> often than not, it was, they'd be throwing shade and you think, what are you doing? I don't, I don't agree with this. And that for me, I mean, whether it was a, I'm a surgeon, nephrologist, hand surgeon, yeah. whatever. I mean, there's, you know, there's certain, I would guess you would call them toxic personalities. Although even that might be just your own reaction to it. Yeah. But yeah, I want you, I want you <laughs> yeah, to walk so me let's, through responding let's to use- that trigger. Let's use that example because that's a trigger for so many of us and and a big part of our, unfortunately, you know, not daily, but frequent clinical experience. Okay, so you're working, minding your own business, doing your best to take care of patients and a nephrologist or a consultant. I don't want to pick on nephrologists, but some consultant rips you a new one about how stupid you are. What's your your immediate response is to be angry, affronted, hurt, and then potentially what will happen? Well, you're going to spend the whole rest of your day angry, affronted, hurt. You're going to then take it out on other people. You're going to then be rude to your kids or your wife or whoever. You're going to cut somebody off in traffic. So in terms of what are the outcomes, it's much more than just your own internal milieu. It bleeds out into all the people around us. It's funny that you say that. So with all of that, and kind of like applying Stoic philosophy or, or, or applying a more, a more skillful response. So I started saying, okay, my first thought now is what if they're right and I'm wrong, that I have something to learn from them. And from a, I guess you could say intellectual standpoint, I could always embrace that after I did this. Like I could always embrace that, but the emotion was always there of being affronted and pissed off. Intellectually, I learned something and I'll apply it again, but I, I can even feel it right now as I'm saying it, like I'm getting flushed in my mm-hmm. face. Like, oh, uh, you're, uh, <laughs> why do you have to act like that? That's great. Taking that point of where can I grow? What can I learn? But I think there's even more that we can do. And really thinking about stretching out that space between stimulus and response. So, one way is to first just analyze it. Say, okay, here, what are my feelings that I'm feeling? Let's try to understand that. Well, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling a little bit intimidated. What if they're right? What if I am a bad doctor? What if I am stupid? And that just gets to the core of my own personality because being a smart, hardworking person is one of my things that's important to me, being a good doctor. So a lot of different emotions. And then looking at what are the thoughts that are causing those emotions? So the thoughts might be, shoot, what if he is right? And I'm a bad doctor. And that causes that fear. Or the thoughts might be, you can think about what it might be for you. The thoughts might be, that's not fair. He can't act that way. Well, he can act however he wants. And he just did. So that's not a useful thought. And we can kind of look and see, well, what are all the layers of thoughts that are going on? Because it's those thoughts that are the filters that create our feelings of anger, frustration, hurt, 
for me, not proud of this. It was always ego. It was mm. always the image that you'd love it when people come down and say, oh, I'm so glad you're on because you know, yeah. I know that things are really going to get done and oh, I'm going to get these great admissions. Like, oh yes, that's the guy I want to be. <laughs> Why didn't you get the lactate, you jackass? <laughs> so we can first just look and try to understand our thoughts. And then the next thing we can do is try to change those thoughts. So choose new thoughts. So instead of the thoughts of shoot, what if he's right? What if I am a bad doctor? Choosing a different thought that is believable. So I'm not saying, oh, we just Pollyanna say, oh, yeah, everything's fantastic. Let me believe that thought. But instead, choosing a thought that's believable, like I'm a decent doctor and I'm doing my best, right? You don't have to say I'm the world's best doctor ever and try to believe that because that's probably not true for any of us. So choosing a different thought that's believable to you. The other tools we have in our toolbox are these two methods that the Stoics use to to get at that space between stimulus and response. And one is the analytical method. So looking and saying, what actually happened just now? Well, that individual used their diaphragm to make some air molecules vibrate that then impinged on my tympanic membrane. That's really all that happened in the physical universe right now. Like, I am not mortally wounded. I'm not bleeding from anywhere. That's all that happened. I got an email the other night that made me really anxious about something. And then I thought, I tried to use this and I thought, okay, what actually happened in the physical universe? There were some pixels on my screen in an arrangement that impinged on my retinas. Okay, let me just try to be very objective about this. And that sort of separates you away and gives you enough space to then think about your response. The other way is the intuitive method. So this is kind of taking the opposite extreme of looking at things from a very big picture, going back to our mortality, looking at the entire span of the universe and time and the world and life, the universe and everything. How big of a deal is this thing that just happened? Really not a big deal at all. Am I going to look back on this in 10 years? And be worried about it. Now, some things I will look back in 10 years. You know, I mentioned my husband's brain tumor. That's something that we still think about. We look back on that's still going to be a, a big deal even 10 years from now. But will this thing that this consultant said to me be a big deal in 10, 20, 100,000 years? No. I love that. And I, I personally found that to be more effective than the intellectual approach. The intellectual is like, okay, I can say, hmm, maybe they're right. And in the long term, that has more of a benefit because the thing that they were, it may be a less than lovely way teaching me. <laughs> I was like, okay, I can apply that to the future. But the emotional response, the thing that I found was the most helpful was that pull yourself up to 60,000 feet and really do it, really visualize it. And you're up there and you kind of see all of society moving about, all these things moving about. And then through your telescopic vision, you're watching this little interaction happening between you and this one surgeon and them impugning your decision not to get a CAT scan on a kid and you telling them that you are uh, applying the PCARN head and, you know, and this whole thing and you look, it's like, but I can't even hear what that is. And just in the whole milieu of the world, it is such, I mean, to me at the moment, there's an emotional response, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not even noticeable. Right. And the really powerful one that, that I would use with that was Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. You look at the pixel of Earth from just within the solar system and how small it is and how everything in the history of humankind has happened on that pixel. And mm -hmm. you are a fraction of that pixel in time. And it's like, okay, 
I'm appreciating my insignificance in the universe. You say, well, that's a, you say, <laughs> yes. well, that's a bad thing. Well, you know what? It's actually a good thing mm -hmm. because that puts whatever this little action and reaction is into perspective. That's the filter with which you act. There's these two sides of it. One is remember mortality. Each moment is so precious because your consciousness gets to experience this and this might be the only chance you get. And the other, the other side of that with the, within the exact same framework is yes, but in the grand scheme of things, very little that you do mm -hmm. matters to the universe. Don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. Everything is small stuff. I remember one time I was driving home from work and I can't even remember what it was that had annoyed me, but something had annoyed me so much and I was just fuming. And I happened to flip up my sun visor in my car, you know, angrily smash it against the roof of my car. And, and then I looked up and this huge blue sky was up there. And I just realized I'm just in this tiny little car driving around, slamming at my sun visor. This really doesn't matter at all. We're kind of talking about these grand ideas, you know, <laughs> your, your tiny pixel of a pixel of, of the universe, but how do you personally apply this? Let's just say you're going into work, I don't know, maybe, and you've got a, got a swirl of emotions. Like what would Christina Shenvey do to, to skillfully approach these moments? Well, I think something that has been really helpful for me when I'm feeling those negative swirl of emotions, whether it's anger, frustration, or a lot of times in this, these, this day and age with COVID, fear or anxiety like we said, first, analyzing and saying, what are the thoughts behind those feelings and addressing those thoughts? And then saying, well, how do I want to feel about this? So say I'm driving into a shift. I worked last night in our COVID bay. I'm driving in. I know I'm going to be exposed to COVID positive patients. I know it may be dangerous. I know I may have to do high-risk procedures. How do I want to feel going into this shift? And really what I want to feel is calm, steady, determined, optimistic, fearless, selfless. And so how do I get there? Well, you can't just yell at yourself and say, feel fearless. That just doesn't work. That's like trying to move a train by pushing on it. It's just not going to work. But what we can do is choose new thoughts that will get us to those feelings. So maybe I can think instead things like starting with gratitude you know, I'm really glad I have job security right now. A lot of people don't. Or maybe I can think about being brave. This is what I trained for. This is why I'm here. Now is our time to shine. Or maybe I can think about the fact that I get to use my skills to serve others. That will help me feel more selfless, help me feel more excited about service. Maybe I can, again, use the understanding of my own mortality. You know what? Life is short. This is what I'm here to do. This is my calling. So we can use the same technique that we use to analyze to then change how we feel through modifying our thoughts. And that can be really powerful. And it's very much like going to the gym. It's not something you do once and then you're done. I lifted a weight once. Now I'm all buff. <laughs> you got to do it every single day. It's a constant practice. So much of acting with agency, as the term goes, I mean, it's part cognitive reframing. It's part just being aware of our habitual reactions and responses to things. And this whole conversation actually makes me think of something a friend of mine shared with me recently. 
he and his wife were having a conversation with their kids about the power of gratitude. And they've got an elementary schooler and a middle schooler. My friend's wife gave the kids each a little notebook to write in daily about something that they're grateful for. Do it morning and the evening. It's just like the five-minute journal that Dan McComb talked about in episode two. I mean, it's really potent stuff. It totally sets your mind in a certain way. But within seconds of handing out these journals, and, you know, the kids are, are going to start writing them and we're kind of looking for pencils. Wait, where's the pencils? The conversation shifted and it went from this gratitude to a complaint session of the siblings blaming each other for all these things, blaming their parents for various infractions, infractions small and large. Hold up, hold up, hold up, my friend said. I've got another journal that I want you to start. Okay, here, here's, here's your journal from me. It's much easier than the new one you've got in your hand. It's a blame journal. You just write down the things that are making you mad and just who it is you blame for them. So he didn't have an actual notebook for them. So he handed out post-it notes. And I'm going to tell you, the kids jumped on that one with alacrity. He showed me his daughter's post-it note and it said things like, I blame dad for moving the pencil. So now I can't write in my gratitude journal. I blame my brother for being an all-around jerk. I blame mom, dot, 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 and on and on and on. And as the kids were doing this, everybody started laughing because it was all put out in the open, the folly of blaming. And it it becomes apparent as folly when it's fully transparent. But even as adults, it's hard to see when that's happening. There's so many names to this skill to these exercises we've been discussing today. Extreme ownership, kind of a whole movement about that. Acting from an internal locus of control, the stoic dichotomy of control. We've discussed that quite a bit in today's conversation where equanimity is fostered by focusing on what is in your sphere of control rather than what's outside it. This is all acting with agency, all of these things. Acting with agency, as Christina said, though, it takes practice. This is not a one and done. It's kind of like taking a shower. You know, you don't take a shower once in your life for one or two days and then you're good to go. Well, I mean, you could, but you'd stink. You get dirty and then you do it again. You keep doing it to stay clean. It takes practice. It takes diligence. It takes discipline to find the space between stimulus and response. Things like meditation can help, you know, recognizing what thoughts look and feel like as they come up. But really just focusing your attention on your internal reactions, your visceral, emotional things that just pop up, that's a real skill. So try this. The next time you feel buffeted by the winds of life, could be external events of nature or external events brought to you by another person, watch your reflexive emotion, how you react internally. That first emotion, that first feeling that arises, that gut sensation You don't have much control over that. It just kind of comes up. But then notice that reaction and then pause. That is the space, the space between stimulus and response. And then think about how you want to respond. It's not easy. And it is nearly impossible to hit this anywhere close to 100%. But that's agency. That's acting with agency. That is owning it. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes beyond the timestamped outline that you see on your podcatcher, just go to stimuluspodcast.com. If you have any questions, thoughts, et cetera, you can do that on the website as well. Until next time, my friends, be well, stay safe, and keep on rocking.